The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. All right, we're going to get started. We're still collecting them, but I have a first few here that I'm going to do my best to answer. So again, what we're seeking to do here today is you're writing down questions about anything really, anonymous questions. And I'm going to do my best to answer these questions over the next little while together, all right? You write down anything you want, but don't sign your name. Oh, you're going to sign your name, okay. If you sign your name, I won't answer it. That's the deal I have. All right, here we go. Um, please explain John 20, verse 23. If you forgive everyone's, uh, anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not uh, forgiven. So let's read that, John 20, 23. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn with me there. And let's get the context. John 20. Okay. So let's, uh, it's the empty tomb. Jesus has risen from the dead. He appears to Mary. And then let's pick it up at verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So there's our context. This is all, it's an authority context. As the Father has sent me, just like I've been sent with the authority of the Father, now I am sending you with that. I'm passing on this authority now to you. That's the context. Then he says, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So there are some theologians who, who feel that this is the moment when not Acts chapter 2. A lot of people think Acts chapter 2 was when the church became filled with the Holy Spirit. Some believe that. Other theologians believe, no, this is the moment when the Holy Spirit was imparted to the, the disciples, to the apostles, and the Spirit began to live in them. But either way, there's a transfer symbolically and, uh, of, of the authority of Jesus to the, to the church, to his followers. Then he says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. In other words, he's saying, if you declare to someone, you are, you are, you are forgiven. If you declare to them uh, that God forgives you, that you're cleansed, then he's saying, then I I'm giving you that authority to declare my forgiveness. In other words, what he's saying here is, I am giving you the authority of the gospel. I'm giving you the message that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So, in other words, Jesus gives me the authority to stand up on a Sunday and say to people at the end of the service, bow your head with me. If you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you invite him into your life, your sins will be forgiven. But if you don't, if you walk out of this room and refuse the grace of God, your sins will not be forgiven. Jesus, right here, gives me the authority to do that. So he's not saying that I can withhold forgiveness to someone who wants it. 
He's not saying, oh, you want to be forgiven? You want to accept Jesus? And you have accepted Jesus as your Savior? Yeah, but I'm telling you, no, Jesus isn't going to forgive you. He's not saying that. He's declaring to us that we have the authority to declare forgiveness in, in the message of the good news. Uh, your preaching team, you said God is not... Okay, this one involves a context that I really don't understand. Something about something that was preached once. Um, so, uh, and they're asking me if I can do something about it. So I'm I'm not aware of that sermon. I would so I really can't answer that one. Um, is there any valid uh, validity in purgatory? Um, a, a purgatory is. If you were perhaps raised Roman Catholic, purgatory is the sense that when you die, um, your sins weren't quite paid for. Your sins, you know, you, 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 uh, there's still sin unpaid for, undealt with sin in your life. And so what do you do? Um, you're, you're, a, a you're a member of the church, but you still have, you know, you have deeds that weren't filled up. Um, I'm phrasing this poorly. So, so the, a Roman Catholic concept of, of salvation is that you, there are works that you need to do to fulfill um, the, what, what Christ did in your life. And so if, if your deeds were not quite good enough and you've died and now you're in this holding place, and so purgatory is that place where your sins are kind of purged off, hence the word purgatory. They're sort of burnt off, they're, uh, they're worked off, or people pay money uh, for you to, someone to pray for you for your sin to be paid for, and then you go up into heaven. Bottom line is, there's really, there is nothing in scripture about purgatory. That's not a biblical concept. That's one of these instances where um, I think the Roman Catholic Church painted themselves into a corner with some doctrines, and uh, no, you, you're not gonna find that anywhere. I think the one place they looked for that is in Corinthians where I often, one of my favorite passages in Corinthians where it talks about the, one will escape as one escaping through the flames. But that's talking about the judgment of Christ uh, on believers and it's talking about that uh, it's possible that people will stand before God and their lives, what they've done will, will not be rewarded it says they will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames, meaning that they'll have no life that will be rewarded, but they themselves will be saved. That doesn't talk about purgatory in the sense of your sins being paid for. Jesus paid for our sins, because that passage begins with the phrase, no other foundation can be laid other than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the whole context of that Corinthians passage is, no, Jesus paid for your sins. Um, it's not a matter of us doing anything to pay for our sins. Uh, can transubstantiation be uh, sustained scripturally? Luther thought so. So transubstantiation, I thought he was a consubstantiationist, not transubstantiation, but I'm not sure about that. So transubstantiation is when we, um, there's a lot of Catholic questions here today, I find this fascinating. Um, when we have communion, or Catholics would call it mass, um, and we take the elements, the bread and the juice, Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, the Roman Catholics see that as uh, what's called transubstantiation, meaning when a priest 
holds that element up, that wafer, that bread up, it literally, literally becomes the body of Jesus. So when you put it in your mouth, you are literally eating the body. Transubstantiation, where it transfers, it becomes, changes transubstance, changing its substance. So it literally goes from where it was once bread, now then it mystically becomes the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, okay? Now we would, we would think, no, Jesus is not speaking literally at that moment, because think about that. When he said that, he had that bread in his hand, he said, this is my body which is for you. Take, eat, and do this often, as often as you know, you, uh, whenever you do this, you're remembering, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, Paul said. So when Jesus said that, this is my body, he still had his body. So he wasn't handing bread to his apostles or disciples at the Last Supper and saying, now you're literally eating some of my muscle and my flesh. He was clearly speaking figuratively at that moment. And we would believe that he's still speaking uh, figuratively today. So you say, is, can it be scripturally sustained? Well, that's the only verse that they would use that I'm aware of to sustain that. And I think that's clearly uh, a metaphor. It's clearly not, uh, he wasn't speaking literally there. Surely his apostles at that moment didn't think that he was speaking literally. They didn't say, we can't, this is cannibalism. We can't do this. They didn't say that. They understood he was speaking figuratively, even though they did not understand truly what he was saying. They had no idea he was about to be crucified. Um, what is the difference between receive the Holy Spirit and the day of Pentecost? Um, I'm wondering if this is this, if you're, if you're referring to the same verse that we just read. Um, there are, this is a, a debate or a discussion within a theological surf, circles. Um, if uh, that receiving the Holy Spirit would be when what we just read in John 20 there, when he said he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, there are some who would say that's when the Holy Spirit began to indwell believers at that moment. And the day of Pentecost is an actual separate experience of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, uh, which is with the initial physical evidence of speaking in other tongues. So uh, receiving the Holy Spirit is something that every follower of Jesus experience. As soon as you become a follower of Jesus, the Spirit of God dwells within you, everyone. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is a separate experience. It's not where the Holy Spirit begins to dwell in you. No, it's, it's an experience of you yielding yourself at a higher level to the Spirit of God in your life. So to receive the Spirit, the moment you become a follower of Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost was um, a separate experience altogether. Um, it wasn't the moment of actually receiving the Holy Spirit. Is annihilationism a plausible biblical view of the fate of the unrepentant souls? Um, God's omnipresence means he is fully conscious and fully active at every point in space, and the unrepentant soul is eternally separated from God. Could this, simply, could this imply that the soul ceases to exist? Could God cease to sustain that soul? Um, I think this is a completely legitimate option. Um, there's, again, debate, discussion about this. So what this question is, is after a person dies and they're not a follower of Jesus... What happens to them? Um, scripture teaches that their soul uh, leaves their body and their soul goes to a holding place, which we know as hell. 
It's a holding place for disembodied, rebellious souls. They're held there until their souls are reunited to their bodies, and they're taken before the judgment seat of Christ on the great white throne judgment. And there, they are finally judged according to their sin because they've rejected Christ. This is what they've chosen. They've, uh, so they're finally judged. And then the Bible says that they are cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. So what's the second death is the big question. Um, one option is second death is an eternal state of separation from God. So they are alive forever, and they are eternally separated from God. And they're actually, this is what they've chosen, and this is what they're, they're actually wanting. They're wanting to be, they're getting what they wanted. They wanted to be separated from God, and they're in that state forever. That's one option. And the other option is, what this person is asking, is annihilationism an option? Meaning, the second death is when that soul ceases to exist because the scripture says in him we live and move and have our being meaning all things remember all life comes from him our lives are sustained by him so is it possible that what god does with these folks after they are judged is he withdraws his sustaining life from them and they cease to exist as as a uh, person as a soul and so they're annihilated forever. There are some who believe that that is a biblical option. That is, the second death is they, are, they cease to exist. I remember when we had William Lane Craig here a while ago, a famous apologist and theologian and a mentor of mine, um, I had lunch with him uh, and I asked him this question, this very question about annihilationism. And he's not an annihilationist, but I said, so Bill, why not? Why, you know, why could that not be an option? And the only answer they'd had was, well, Darren, I don't think that's fair. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, they're, they're, ultimately, then they're not being punished for their sin. They're just, they just don't get to exist anymore. And I said, well, that's a punishment. And we agreed to disagree. But anyway, so um, I think it's an option. It's a leg legitimate option, though um, a lot of, many people don't think that that's what Scripture teaches, though I think it's an option. Um, why can we feel like God knitted us in his womb, but we feel like we got the wrong pattern? <laughs> That's very poetic. Um, that, that's sort of what sin, it, it's a consequence of sin. One of the consequences of sin is it affects us physically, it affects us mentally, it affects us emotionally, it affects us spiritually. So, Again, the illustration that I often use is a wheel. This is a wheel looking straight at the wheel. You know, it was designed to be, um, this is a, a bike tire, okay? So I'm looking down at it. it. It was designed to be straight. But sin is a, when the wheel hits a curve and that becomes warped, the tire rim becomes warped. And so that wheel was designed to go s straight, but when it is warped by sin, when you, set it off on its own, it'll go off on, on its side. And it will feel natural for it to go off on that side. That's not what it was created to be, but that's what sin has done. And so, yes, you know, again, poetically, uh, David talks about being knit in my mother's womb. So, yes, God designed us, he created us, but we are not experiencing God's full design. So you're kind of looking at your life like, Let's say someone looks at a, uh, a Porsche you know, or, or, or a, a 
Maserati, some really high-end sports car, and, but it's been in an accident. And you walk up to this car that's been in an accident, and you see the big dented fenders and scrapes on it and that, and you say, man, that's, whoever designed this didn't do a very good job. Look at all the dents and scrapes and everything. I, I, don't, I don't know, that's not a very good job. Well, in a sense, when we look at humanity, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at a humanity that's been, that, that's had a fall, that's been in an accident. But what's amazing is, even when we look at fallen humanity, we marvel at it. And we're saying, wow, so just think how incredible our creator is that even though we're fallen uh, as creatures, we still marvel at our humanity. So the reality is that just because I feel something doesn't make it God's design. That's a key principle. Just because I'm feeling it doesn't make it God's design. So the old 1960s adage, hey, if it feels good, do it. No. And you wouldn't give that advice to anybody anyway. Truly, if your children came up to you and said, you know, mom, dad, I, I, I feel like punching my sister. Well, if that's how you feel, then you need to go with that because that's how God made you. No, no, we understand that not every feeling is something that we respond to that there are some feelings that need to be resisted. And uh, so God is the template. We need to go by God's design. God's word is what lays out uh, his design for us. Uh, what's the latest news on the Israel trip? How many going? <laughs> Can we meet as a group? We'll meet as a group at the airport. <laughs> um, the latest number that I received is there's over 50 people going, 5-0, and that's exciting. Um, but uh, I, as, as other than that, um, whether we can meet as a group or not, who knows? La, leave that with me. That'd probably be a good idea as we get closer to do that. But the truth is people are still signing up and I don't want to have a meeting uh, and then have to have a couple other meetings after that. Does forgiveness require repentance? It all depends on the, what you're referring to with forgiveness. Meaning, I can forgive you without you repenting. But the full experience of forgiveness does require repentance, okay? So to experience forgiveness fully. So in other words, I can't say, well, I'm not going to forgive that person until they come and repent. No. Um, we're to forgive just as we've been forgiven. Um, so for me to forgive is to is to not hold against you what you did to me anymore. What I'm doing is I'm taking, I'm giving it to God and say, God, uh, I'm entrusting this person to you and uh, I'm not gonna hold this against them. I'm not gonna, no longer gonna hold bitterness towards them. I forgive them. Um, but for you to experience forgiveness from God, um, yes, does require repentance. Why is that? Because you, forgiveness is something that you can only receive if you acknowledge that you need it, okay? So if I don't think I need something from you, I'm not going to receive it when you offer it to me. I don't, well, I don't need that, you know? Um, so forgiveness is one of those things that you've got to acknowledge it. There's an old saying, you can't fix what you won't acknowledge. And forgiveness is one of those things. Well, I don't I don't need to be forgiven. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've actually tried to forgive someone. You go to someone perhaps who's wounded you and hurt, hurt you in the past, and you say to them, I just want you to know that thing that you did to me 20 years ago, I forgive you. And they look at you and say, forgive me for what? I, 
I don't need your forgiveness. You know, so you've offered it to them, but unless they've acknowledged their error, their sin, their wrong, they'll, the whole forgiveness experience will be immune, they'll be immune to it. So that's why I say, the question is, does forgiveness require repentance? On the giving end, no. On the receiving end, yes. Okay. As I understand forgiveness. Any plans to bring back the choir ministry? Um, no, not that I'm aware of. Uh, we tried a couple times. So they, we, we do have a choir every Christmas. And I'm wondering if the person who asked that question is in the Christmas choir. Um, but uh, no, there seems to be no interest in it or no willingness to, um, to, to do what a choir requires. Um, here's a second one. Why did we get rid of the choir? Actually, we didn't get rid of the choir. This is interesting how this is fake news. Um, <laughs> you're, you're forgetting uh, something. Um, when I first came about 10 years ago, we tried to start the choir up again. You're not remembering that. We tried to start the choir up again, and, uh, but like 12 people signed up for it. So don't, we didn't get rid of the choir. So don't say that. That's not true. Um, you're making up your own history there. Um, Okay. How can spending $5 million on an existing building, exterior walls, be justified outside existing walls should be properly resurfaced for a lot less than a million? Um, no, you're, uh, you're not understanding the full scope of the job here. Um, we don't have to resurface the walls. We have to replace the walls. So it's not a matter of, oh, let's just paint them or stucco them. No. What you need to understand is, so if this is a, here's a, let's say this is the outside of the wall and then there's rivets into them and they're into the steel studs or whatever, okay? So there's rivets into this stuff and then there's a coating on that wall and so on. What's happened is it's not a matter of just this stuff, uh, it's, it's, this is completely rotted and rusting in behind here and everything. And these materials that were used 30 years ago or whatever could no longer be used today. They cannot sustain BC weather. And so they need to be removed and replaced. Plus um, in s some stuff in behind and plus concrete as well. It's caused erosion of concrete around, so all that needs to be replaced. Also uh, windows as well uh, need to be replaced. Um, because of the whole deterioration. So it's not a matter of resurfacing the walls. That's, that's not what's going on. Um, and uh, the quotes that we have are, have all been bid professionally. It's taken a couple of years for us to get to this process. So uh, this is the um, state of the art. This is the, um, those are uh, good, the best, the best bid prices, let me put it to you that way. Uh, and it's been well researched and uh, well followed up. So uh, it's a fair question. And, uh, and we've had uh, several meetings where a congregation could ask questions of, of the committee and so on. Um, it's, it's a well vetted process, let me put it to you that way. And RDH, the firm that's been overseeing it, is world class. And uh, we've gone with their 
uh, recommendations and their guidance throughout this whole thing. Um, in the Bible, it is said that the only sin which will not be forgiven is the blasphemy against God. Could you explain? Thank you. Sure. So Jesus talks about uh, sins against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but it doesn't say blasphemy against God. It says, but the sin against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. So the, it doesn't say God. It says sins against the Holy Spirit. So in other words, there's a, a, there's a differentiation between you can sin against Jesus and that can be forgiven, but if you sin against the Holy Spirit... That cannot be forgiven. So what's that all about? I think if you understand the context, what's being said here is Jesus is saying, okay, listen. He's, walk, he's walking the earth when he says this. Keep in mind, he is Jesus of Nazareth, and he's revealing himself as the Messiah, and they later understand that he's actually the third person of the Trinity, God in flesh. But he's saying, listen, I understand that if you see me and you actually don't completely get it. You don't understand who I am, and, and you're confused, or your knowledge is limited, and so on. If you blaspheme, or you reject, literally, me, you sin against me, you say words against me, you speak words against me, you push back against me, that's actually forgivable. In the long run, that's not unforgivable. That can be forgiven. But if you reject, resist, work against, speak against the Holy Spirit, okay, um, then that is not forgivable. Well, why is that? Because the role of the Holy Spirit is to reveal Jesus to you. The role of the Holy Spirit is to work on your heart, as, we, as we've been learning even in this series, you know, where we receive the Spirit of God through our spirit, and he reshapes our, our will and, and, and our emotions and our intellect and so on. And so that's what the Spirit does. He works within us. Remember, to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes, it says in Philippians. So it's the Spirit who does all of that in our lives. And so if you are working against the Spirit, you're working against the only one who can reveal to you who Jesus is. So it's like Jesus saying, listen, if you, um, if, if, I, if you reject the hand that's reaching out to you as you're drowning in the water, then you, you cannot be saved. Because you're rejecting the only way out of that drowning water, okay, of that water in which you're drowning. So to blaspheme or reject the Holy Spirit is to reject the work of the Spirit. And the work of the Spirit is to reveal Christ and to draw you to Christ. And so you're rejecting, it's like the only door to salvation and you are rejecting that. That cannot be forgiven. Because that's the way to forgiveness. You are rejecting, refusing the only door to forgiveness. That's through relationship with the Spirit of God. The Spirit will introduce you to the person of Jesus, will reveal the person of Jesus to you. And so if you're right now rejecting and resisting who Jesus is, Jesus says, I understand that. Because it's the Spirit who reveals you to me. Um, reveals me to you. And so I can understand that if you're in the dark about me, listen, that's forgivable. That's understandable. But the Spirit will make me plain to you. But if you reject the Spirit and resist the Spirit, that's unforgivable. 
because there's no other, there's no one who's going to explain the Spirit to you. The Spirit is the one who draws you to Christ. That's the Father sent the Spirit to draw you and, ex and reveal me, Jesus, to you. So you're rejecting the only pathway to salvation. John 16, 8 says, let me read it right now. When he comes, the Spirit, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people don't believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He'll not speak on his own, he'll speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He'll glorify me because it's from me that he'll receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Exactly. And so if you reject the Spirit, you're rejecting the only way to understand who Jesus is. Yes. Pardon me? Sure, Kim. Right. Yeah, so to blaspheme or teach against the Holy Spirit does not mean to be in a denomination that teaches that the baptism of the Holy Spirit isn't for today or something like that. To blaspheme or reject the Holy Spirit is to uh, live your life in opposition to the work of the Spirit of God in your life. And if you die in that state, that is unforgivable. Okay, is what scripture is teaching is if you if you live your life in the state of rejecting the spirit of God, um, the work of the spirit of God in your life, that is the unforgivable sin. Um, but if you at some time in your life had a false understanding or even worked against God, uh, that can be forgiven. If you eventually someday, yes, uh, no longer resist or reject the work of the spirit in your life. Okay, good. By the way, that's good. As Kim has done, feel free to shout out or if you want to do a follow-up to anything that we've talked about here. Too late. <laughs> Why do troubles come in bunches? <laughs> These people have triplets, I guess, or twins. Um, I know I, that's, a, that's above my pay grade. Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. It often seems that way, doesn't it? Um, I can't explain that. Darren, why do I still, still feel guilty about Jesus having suffered on the cross for me? Um, well, I, I suppose that's, that's understandable in the sense that you're, you're, you're understanding, you're seeing the full weight of what Jesus did. Um, why do I, you feel guilty? I suppose we are guilty, aren't we? I feel guilty because I am guilty, and there's really no way around that. Uh, I suppose to feel otherwise would be to minimize what Jesus did and to minimize my own sin. Um, so while I, I think it's, it's okay, I, I wouldn't feel guilty about feeling guilty, if that makes sense, um, but I wouldn't 
beat myself up about that. I would acknowledge it. I, I'd see that more as, yes, I acknowledge that I'm feeling guilty because I am guilty. And again, but what you need to understand is Jesus, and maybe some of this is fed by our own background, by our own family systems, perhaps. Meaning, you know, you had a, have a, a loved one, a mother or a father who has somehow guilted or shamed and so sort of this passive-aggressive thing where you're made to feel guilty all the time as a way of manipulating you. Oh, look what you're making me do. You know, all right, I'll do this, but you're making me do this because of you that we have to do this. And so you feel guilty, and maybe you're transferring that onto God. I guess what you need to know is it's one thing to feel guilty in the sense of I feel the guilt that, Jesus, I made you do that. Well, actually, you didn't make them. I feel guilt in the sense that it's my guilt that's causing that pain in your life, and I feel that reality. That's acceptable. That's healthy even. But to then go the next step and say, and Jesus, you just must be looking at me and resenting me. That's a lie. That's where you've taken it a step further, and that's where the enemy has got some toxicity into your heart, your mind, your spirit. Again, let's come back to our series when we're learning about the nature of God. He loves you unconditionally. And he, you know, understand this. Jesus can never be disappointed in you. Just look at that. This occurred to me years ago. Look at the word disappointed. I'm disappointed in that marker right now, to be honest with you. Disappointed. Okay, just look at the word for a moment. And we think Jesus is disappointed in me. To be disappointed means there was an appointment that was expected, but it's been dissed. It's, oh, it's not what I expected. I am disappointed. I had an appointment with you at 1 o'clock, and you didn't show up. I am disappointed. What I thought would happen is not happening. I am saddened and disappointed. It is impossible for an all-knowing God to be disappointed. God never says, oh, man, I thought you were going to do X, and you did Y. I am disappointed in you. No, everything that you do, he knew and knows you will do before you do it. And he's created a world knowing that you would do everything that you've done. He's anticipated it all, okay? So that doesn't mean God's happy about everything that I do. That doesn't mean he endorses everything that I can do. But God is never up there, again, we're thinking in human terms, he's never up there thinking, oh, man, here we go. Okay, now you've messed it all up, Darren. All right, okay, stop the music, pause. Now what am I going to do? No, he's never disappointed in you. Everything that happens in my life, he knew it would happen. He knows what will happen. Remember Psalm 139, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. Uh, when I sit and when I rise, you know, before a word's on my tongue, you know it completely. Think of that. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. He is not disappointed in what I say because before I said it, he knew I'd say it. Okay? So... I come back to the whole uh, guilt. So no, don't feel guilty in the sense of thinking that God is ticked off at you or frustrated with you or angry at you. That's not true. 
he willingly went to the cross knowing full well. And he created you knowing full well what you would do. He loves you unconditionally. Love is patient, it's kind. You know, it keeps no record of wrongs. And so we need to understand that's the kind of love that you are loved with. Do I see a hand over here? Yes, Walter. Earlier you already illustrated the problem of living by feelings. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to live by truth. And the word of God is truth. And Jesus is the way, the truth. So if we need to live by truth. Yes. Absolutely. What Walter's saying, you need to live by truth, not by feelings. And I remember the old tract, you know, that people used to hand out uh, the, four, the four spiritual laws and so on. And there was the train and the engine is the fact. And then it pulls feelings. So it's the kind of the caboose or whatever. So always facts before feelings. Don't get the feelings in front of facts, okay? Because if your feelings are in front of your facts, you're not going anywhere. Facts should always be in the driver's seat, should always be in the engine, not feelings. Feelings aren't bad. They just shouldn't be driving. I was going to say like my wife, but that would be a stupid thing to say. Because <laughs> she's a really good driver, truth be told. But her and I joke because <laughs> When she's in the driver's seat, she's a completely different person when she's in the passenger seat. And because when she's in the passenger seat, oh, Darren, slow down, do this, do that, oh, you're this, you're that. And I say, no, can how be driver Jan? Let's have driver Jan sit over there because driver Jan is just as aggressive as I am. But suddenly she gets a whole different glow about her when she's in the passenger seat. And uh, so fact should always be in the driver's seat. And that's the last question. Yes, follow up. Yes. Yes, she's saying that God knows everything even before we do it. So people who reject Christ, God knows that they will reject them. Absolutely. He does. He knows um, everything that everyone will do even before they do it. Um, and uh, yet... He, his knowledge doesn't cause their behavior. That's what we need to understand. We are free will creatures. So foreknowledge does not mean causation in the sense that, okay, it's, it's 11 o'clock. I know in one minute I'm going to dismiss you and you're going to walk out that door. Does that mean my knowledge is causing you to walk out that door? No, you're doing it of your own free will. The fact that I know you're going to do it is not causing you to do it. In a similar way, God's knowledge, it's not, we still have absolute free wills. Because he knows it doesn't mean he causes it. Great questions, folks. God bless you. Thank you for being here today. Choir practice at 10 a.m.